0: Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility. Today, we're going to be talking about intravaginal culture with Dr. John Park. He is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist with Carolina Conceptions in Raleigh, North Carolina. In addition to being an RE, he has also earned a Master's of Science in Clinical Research. Welcome, Dr. Park, to Creating a Family.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I, I was particularly interested in your uh, master's of science in clinical research. We are uh, research geeks around here at Creating a Family. We try to be the bridge between the research community and the patient and, and nurse community. So anyway, when I saw that, my eyes, uh, so I had, of course, to include that in your introduction.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: we, we try to practice uh, evidence-based medicine as much as we can. And Uh, Going through that uh, extra bit of education certainly has made me be more critical of the information that's out there.
0: You know, that's such an interesting point. Yeah, I I, uh, I would think that is exactly true. All right. In order to understand who should consider intervaginal culture, let's go through the, kind of the basics of what we recommend for people trying to conceive. And again, the basic advice, which most of our listeners have heard more than once, is that if you are under 35, you should try for one year with timed intercourse before you see a specialist. Unless, let's be honest, unless there are other reasons you have to pre- anticipate that you might be having uh, uh, fertility problems. If you are 35 or older, you should seek treatment with a specialist sooner and generally no later than six months. So what we're really talking about is options available to people at this point. Um, is, is that is that pretty much the lay of the land, uh, Dr. Park?
1: Correct. Um those recommendations are in place by the American society for reproductive medicine. And, and um, those, those are good recommendations to go by.
0: Okay. So, uh, what are, uh, patients, somebody who has has been trying for a year with timed intercourse, uh, and timed intercourse of course means uh, making certain that you are having sex during uh, the time that you are ovulating your most fertile times. So for those people who have been trying for the requisite period of time, what are their options? for fertility treatment and let's go start with kind of at the at the the more simple and then move up sure
1: if if a patient or a couple has gone through the evaluation and there hasn't been an obvious cause to their infertility then in most cases patients start with oral medication for ovarian stimulation and the most common types would be clomid or letrozole and when those medications are used um, they can help the patient control the timing of ovulation. So the couple can be more precise about timing intercourse,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but they could also use those oral medications in conjunction with IUI.
0: Okay, and IUI for, for, again, I think most of our audience knows this, but is intrauterine insemination.
1: If a few months of uh, treatment with oral medication has failed, then the efficiency of the process can be increased by getting the patient to ovulate with more eggs. Um, And that would involve taking injectable gonadotropins. More monitoring would be required with that form of treatment to make sure that uh, we're getting the desired effect out of the ovaries, but at the same time, not too many um, eggs will be released so that we can minimize the chance of a multiple pregnancy. So that requires uh, more monitoring, and there's more of a balancing act mm-hmm. in that form of treatment. But the idea is to control when the patient ovulates, um, and uh, but just with more eggs than we can get with oral medication, um, and then again, the, the the patient can try to get pregnant through either timed intercourse or IUI.
0: Okay, so uh, so that's kind of the the second tier, and and we should mention that these don't necessarily have to be tiered, uh, that depending on what your diagnosis is or, and what your doctor is saying, some of these it would make sense not to do at all um, or to do them for longer or in a different order or whatever. But generally speaking, you're kind of working this up the fertility treatment ladder. Okay, so we, uh, let's assume that IUIs have not been effective uh, or what, what's the next thing that you might consider?
1: Well, the next thing traditionally has been to move on to regular conventional in vitro fertilization, or IVF, where uh, the patient uses the injectable gonadotropins to stimulate a much larger number or cohort of eggs to develop. And rather than ovulating, the patient will undergo a procedure to extract the eggs, the egg retrieval procedure. And then in the laboratory, those eggs could be fertilized by literally injecting Uh, individual sperm into those eggs. And by having a larger number of eggs, we can, we hope that uh, we have several embryos that develop well over the next five days. And then usually only one embryo is then returned to the uterus um, in the embryo transfer procedure. if if there are extra embryos that are created there that are of high enough quality they can be frozen and stored for future use. So that's how a typical IVF cycle would work.
0: Okay and then today we're going to be talking about a relatively new although it's not um, there's been research that dates back a while but relatively new uh, uh, treatment option called intravaginal culture or IVC. So how does that compare and where does it fit into the uh, the traditional treatments that you just mentioned. So
1: intravaginal culture is an, a, a fairly new form of treatment um, that is becoming more mainstream that fits in nicely in between uh, injectables, injectable gonadotropins with IUI and an IVF cycle. The key difference between IVC um, in, in cell treatment Versus traditional IVF is that with InvoCell, the patient herself is the incubator for the eggs and embryos rather than an IVF laboratory.
0: And let me pause here and say that we're using two terms intravaginal culture as well as InvoCell. InvoCell uh, is uh, we we sometimes hear it referred to as that because they're the manufacturer of the device that is inserted into the woman's vagina, uh, and so that's why you may uh, I, I certainly know from our audience that they they seem to use Invocell as frequently as they do intravaginal culture so.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, the term is be- has become synonymous with intravaginal culture.
0: Yeah, it has actually. Uh, they may not want that to be the case, but that, I think it has actually in this case. Um, okay. So you're kind of uh, putting it in between uh, an IUI, uh, but before you move to IVF. Okay. So what is the, what, first of all, what is the IVC intravaginal culture process?
1: Well, it starts with a varying stimulation like with, IVF would.
0: Okay, same as, so, so injectable gonadotropinsin.
1: Yes. And um, now here is where you can see some variability from one clinic to another. Um, because Invisal is really about the intravaginal culture, but some clinics are using it in different ways. Oh, okay. Um, I think the majority of clinics are using it in a way similar to how we are and we're we're using invacell in a way that gives patients another cost conscious treatment choice the invacell device like i said has become synonymous with intravaginal culture because it's the first fda cleared system and there's nothing else on the available yet that's like this so to make it cost conscious what we're doing is having patients go through ovarian stimulation but with the intent on getting a smaller number of eggs than we would normally get for okay. a regular IVF cycle. That reduces the cost in two ways. One is that the injectable gonadotropins are very expensive and by targeting a smaller number of eggs the patients takes a lower dose of the medication The second reason is that um, the response to the ovaries with a lower dose of medication is more predictable, and we don't have to do as much ultrasound monitoring for a patient while she's doing ovarian stimulation. Um, The egg retrieval procedure is the same technique uh, as a regular IVF egg retrieval procedure. The patient undergoes conscious sedation anesthesia, And we use a vaginal ultrasound to guide a needle that goes through the vaginal tissue into the ovaries to extract the eggs. It's a short 10 to 15 minute procedure, either way. But then uh, the key difference is that uh, instead of bringing the eggs into the IVF laboratory for the next five days, they only stay in the IVF laboratory for about 15 minutes. Once we've extracted the eggs, we combine them with the sperm and we incubate them together for about 15 minutes and then we by that point sperm has already um, started getting through all of the cells that surround the egg and are approaching the egg's outer shell so we take the eggs and place them in the InvaCell device and then we insert the InvaCell device into the patient's vagina, along with um, a, a retention device that the end cell comes with, which is basically a diaphragm. So that helps um, keep the InvaCell device at the top of the vagina. And at that point, the patient's able to get dressed and go home.
0: How many embryos can be grown, cultured, in the InvaCell device?
1: Well, at this point, there doesn't appear to be a limit. Um, now we're targeting somewhere between five to 10 eggs per patient at the time of the egg retrieval procedure. And on average, we're getting about nine and a half eggs. And we can put all of those into the endocell device along with the sperm. And it doesn't seem to, um, uh, to 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 have any negative effect at this point, to have ten eggs versus only five.
0: Okay, so potentially, once the process, are are you are you cultivating for three days, five days to the blastocyst stage, or what?
1: We're culturing until the blastocyst stage. so That's day five, uh, five days of development. Um, now the device is FDA cleared for up to three days of embryo culture. Um, And so I should say that it is off label to use it for an additional two days, but um, there is already a a body of evidence in the literature where uh, many centers are culturing it for five days and getting very good results. And we found that that's uh, uh, our experience as well. So the patient um, comes back five days later and will remove the imbecile device and the embryologist will then remove the material that's there and um, we are able to find out how many high quality embryos we have at that point and then immediately do the embryo transfer.
0: And are you, if there are, uh, assuming that you generally will transfer just one, can you then also freeze any uh, excess high quality embryos for a later attempt?
1: Absolutely. And that's part of why this form of treatment is such a great value to patients. Um, because not only are the pregnancy rates um, quite high, but the potential to have extra embryos to freeze for the future children or future attempts at pregnancy add a lot of value to this process. And, um, And many people realize that proceeding down this path of treatment will give people the opportunity to have other children in the future without having to do more involved treatment such as regular IVF or go through another egg retrieval procedure.
0: And and you're comparing now the IVC to IUI, and with IUI, you don't have that option. With IVC, you might have that option. Correct. <clears throat> and then of course with IVF you would also have that option.
1: Right. That's right.
0: Okay. So You've talked about some advantages to the uh, that we're gonna. Well, let's go ahead and talk about cost. You mentioned that that uh, IVC is a, a cost-conscious uh, alternative to IVF. So, how do the costs compare? And obviously, it's, there's going to be some range, obviously, with medication and other things. But like turnkey cost, how much would a typical IVC cycle? range in cost versus a IUI versus an IVF?
1: With the way we're using um, intravaginal culture with the InvaCell, uh, we are pricing it so that it is just over 50 percent of its typical cost for a regular IVF cycle. Um, But our pregnancy rates are very similar to a regular IVF cycle.
0: Okay. And that was good. You're anticipating my next question. Okay. And, and so it would be more, well, that's an interesting thing. I was going to go back to comparing it to IUI, but that, you know, IUI, if you're using injectable gonadotropins, is not particularly inexpensive. I mean, we think of IUI as being inexpensive, but once you start putting the the, the injectables, which then require significantly more monitoring because we don't want to end up with, you know, octuplets or whatever, quadruplets or or, or large, you know, large order multiples. So how would typical cycle with infocell compare to an IUI, let's say, with uh, injectables?
1: I think that if a patient has a good ovarian reserve, she shouldn't need high doses of injectable gonadotropin. So I'm kind Of doing some math in my head here, (laughs) that you know what the cost of one imbecile cycle would be approximately the same cost of three cycles of using injectable gonadotropins with IUI.
0: Okay, that gives people a real that's a perfect grant. Okay, so basically, it's situated price range. And And you know we talk money because the reality is uh, for many people, if if infrat- if insurance is not covering it, and for most people in the u s, it is not covered by insurance, um, and so they're paying out of pocket. So cost is something that is um, is is critical to them and Absolutely. is certainly a motivating factor to consider IBC.
1: Absolutely. Um, it is usually a part of my conversation with every new patient consultation. I practice in a state that is not a mandated state uh, mm-hmm. for fertility coverage. So knowing the cost is a huge part of the equation in helping patients decide what path is best for them to go down when they're looking at their treatment options. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is so great about cell is that it is a cost-conscious option and it gives patients access to another form of treatment with very good success rates uh, at a cost that Many people can can afford who otherwise wouldn't be able to do regular IVF.
0: Right, and that's the and from our standpoint, one of the reasons we're interested in covering it is that we want more we want more access to care, and and cost is a is a function of that. So yeah, hence why this is an important topic. Let me pause for a moment to let you know that this show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For women who have been undergoing fertility treatment and are still struggling to conceive, Faring wants you to know about the Ferticom app. It was designed specifically to help women address the many challenging emotional life situations that inevitably arise when struggling to conceive. There are, they include, uh, the app includes uh, daily scenarios and interactions and gives you some uh, uh, tried and true coping techniques uh, developed by Dr. Ali Domar and Dr. Liz Grill, which are both reproductive psychologists. You can get more information about the Ferticom app at FerticomApp. Dot com, and that's f e r t i com c a l m a p p dot com. All right. So the I guess the sixty four million dollar question is is talking about pregnancy rates because obviously that's what uh, that's what we're all seeking. So how do the uh, pregnancy how does per cycle pregnancy rates compare? from a, uh, from IVC to IV. Well, let's say IVC. I wanted to compare it to both IUI without injectables, IUI with injectables and IVF. You could take that in any order you want. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, I feel like I'm in a new patient <laughs> consultation now. <laughs>
0: great. Yeah. Wow. Well, the, uh, yep. That's what you get paid the big bucks for. Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we can certainly run through those and I'll, um, I'll give you num- numbers that I would normally give a new patient that I'm meeting. Oh, perfect. Um, and if we look at pregnancy rates using oral medication, um, combined with IUI, I mean, historically the pregnancy rates have been a little over 10% per cycle. And when we constantly follow our statistics, that ends up being the case, we can see pregnancy rates of 12 to 15% per cycle here in our patients. If people move up to the next option and look at injectable gonadotropins with IUI, you can see an increase in pregnancy rates, but it's not a doubling. We go to about a uh, 20 to 22% chance of pregnancy each month with gonadotropins and IUI. With InvaCell, if we look at all cycles that have been done here so far and have started ovarian stimulation, we're seeing pregnancy rates of 65%. And with IVF, if we look at a similar population of patients, we're seeing pregnancy rates of about 75%. If we we look at pregnancy rates in Anything that involves an embryo transfer, uh, there's two different ways of reporting those pregnancy rates. One is to look at all patients who begin the process or what we call a cycle start. And then we could also have a different denominator called uh, the actual embryo transfer procedure. Um, And the reason for having those differences is that some patients who start the process don't actually end up putting an embryo back into the uterus. And what's very interesting in our experience with the InvaCell is that if we look at the per embryo transfer pregnancy rate, we're just over 90%.
0: Let me see if I can understand it and say that another way. You can start a cycle, but it may end up that you have uh, no embryos to transfer. So that rate is going to be different. For the, You would expect the number of people who start a cycle to be greater uh, or the the pregnancy rate to be less because you're going to have some dropout because there will be people who are not getting embryos in order to transfer. Am I am I saying that correctly?
1: That is exactly right, and that okay. was uh, how I was just about to mm-hmm. explain that. And that, that can happen in in regular IVF cycles, where you know we we get to the point where there, there's either no fertilization of eggs or the embryo quality is too poor yeah. to mm-hmm. transfer. But it can also happen in in the cell cycles. Um, and so InvaCell has great pregnancy rates when we have a good embryo, but there are a proportion of patients who will have, um, poor fertilization in the InvaCell device, or they just didn't start with as many eggs as we wanted them to, and they didn't end up with a good embryo.
0: So is the, um, I don't know the right uh, term for this, um, is the Culture, um, that's not probably the right, culture failure would not be the right uh, term. But does does IVC have a higher percentage of embryos that would not develop to the transfer stage, not become transferable?
1: Um, The way I would explain how I interpret this phenomenon is that I think that the intravaginal culture technique and device work very well because the quality of the embryos we're seeing um, for many of our patients is very high. Um, We've seen some very beautiful embryos coming out of the invasile device, but some patients, um, we are learning the hard way, have fertilization failure as an infertility cause. Uh, When we're doing traditional IVF, we are usually doing the ICSI process, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. That's when we assist with fertilization by injecting the sperm into the eggs. But when we're doing InvaCell, we are not able to do ICSI. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so we can't assist with fertilization, and we're relying on that to happen more naturally. And so gotcha. we, we've had a, a number of cases where patients have come back and we found that none of the eggs are fertilized. Um, I don't think it's a culture problem. I think it's a fertilization failure.
0: And those patients would not see that in a, how you practice a standard IVF cycle because you're going to be using ICSI, which is when you grab one sperm and literally poke it into an egg. So you're manually fertilizing the eggs. So if that, the assumption would be that the problem that they were having is that they needed ICSI, which is not a part of the IVC process.
1: Correct. Not for us. I know that there are some clinics that are doing ICSI with the though.
0: Well, I'm going to come back to that, how you mentioned at the beginning that there are some different ways, uh, and we'll come back to that at the end. Okay, so Um, so we, uh, there are going to be the patients who, whose fertility issues are most likely centered around the actual fertilization, the sperm getting into the egg. Those patients, uh, you would find out through IVC that that's, uh, that's where their problem lies and they would need to move on to IVF. But assuming that that isn't the cause of their infertility, then that you're seeing, uh, relatively high development of embryos through the uh, InvaCell device? Correct. Okay, excellent.
1: In our um, population of patients who have done this so far, um, we are averaging a little over two high-quality embryos per cycle. So about 50% of our patients who go through have an extra embryo to freeze or maybe even more than one.
0: And in a typical IVF cycle, you would expect more?
1: Yes, on average. That's right. If we look at the similar population of patients that are doing Invisal, that that would be the case. My expectations would be higher. Uh, Just because we're aiming for more eggs in a regular IVF cycle, we're likely to have a higher number of embryos develop from those.
0: You're using more gonadotropins. You're doing more stimulation of the ovaries, generally, from what you were saying. That's correct. Okay, so um, we've talked about cost as a advantage or something to consider about uh, using IVC. Are there some other advantages from you for using a woman's vagina as an incubator versus uh, using a laboratory incubator?
1: Yes. Um... There are, an, a, I would say, a fairly high percentage of patients who are um, intimidated or deterred from doing a more advanced treatment because of how less personal it is, um, about how it's too technological, and some people may feel that that's a lot less natural. Mm-hmm. And, um, but if you look at the Invisel device, in how the female patient can be the incubator to these embryos. Um, For many patients, it feels a lot more natural that Mm -hmm. they know that this embryo development is supposed to be happening within her body naturally. And though it's not happening within the fallopian tubes and a device in the vagina instead, it's still much closer to being natural than an IVF lab.
0: The psychological issues, yeah, uh, there have been some surveys of women who have and there's a fairly high patient satisfaction. I think um, one of the things that infertility does, for, particularly for women, probably for men as well, is that it leaves them with the feeling of being out of control and a feeling that their body is not functioning the way it's supposed to. Their body has failed them in some way. And, and the, uh, the use of a device such as the InvoCell device gives them back a sense of control and actually allows them to feel as if their body perhaps is, is, is stepping up, you know, it's doing part of what it's supposed to do. So I do think, are you also seeing from a psychological standpoint that patients are, are feeling uh, better about the process because of the fact that they're involved?
1: Yes. Yes, definitely. So. And then another patient population that has found this to be a good form of treatment for them are lesbian patients. Yeah. Um, There was a a big news story that came out in the fall from a clinic in Texas, and uh, there was a lesbian couple who went through InvaCell, um, where one partner carried the InvaCell device for five days, but the other partner had actually gone through the embryo transfer procedure. Mm-hmm. So they got to to both share as much as possible in the process of having a child together. And um of course, you know, no other treatment option will allow uh, a couple like that to be able to share in the process in the same way.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting uh uh case where uh again it it's more shared parenting in that sense, or as that article said, we both carried our baby. Um so what about the um the the similarity that you mentioned earlier, I mean, generally speaking, and in, in natural conception without fertility treatment, uh, the egg and the sperm meet and, and the early embryonic development takes place in the fallopian tubes. How does the, the vaginal environment, because the, let me go back and say that these InvoCell devices are gas permeable, um, as I understand it, which would mean that some of the environment uh, that uh, the vaginal environment is influencing the the media and the and the embryo development. How does that vaginal uh, environment compare to the fallopian tube environment?
1: Well, the actual environment is quite different, but what makes the conditions similar really is the InvaCell device and the eggs and sperm that are put into the imbecile device are um, within culture media. And that media has all of the nutritional needs of of early developing embryos. And as you mentioned, the imbecile device is gas permeable. So uh, we know that the fallopian tube environment is a low oxygen concentration environment. Um, The vagina is too. Um, But with the exchange of the gases through the imbecile device, this has allowed the pH of the culture media inside the imbecile device to remain neutral around 7.2 to 7.4. And the temperature, of course, is optimal. It should be the same temperatures Mm -hmm. within the the pelvis and the fallopian tubes. So, um, yeah, the the, the vaginal environment is different. Um, The pH is more acidic but it's really because it's a low um, oxygen concentration environment um, at the right temperature is why the imbecile device can still work well.
0: And, and then there's also, of course, that the fluctuation in temperatures, because we know that that our body temperatures fluctuate, not, not insignificantly throughout the day. Now, I, I realize that that can be mimicked in a lab um, environment, and it is very successfully, but does um, is there any, uh, is there any plus to the fluctuations that take place within naturally within a woman versus uh, an incubator, which is set to also fluctuate, or most of them are, as I understand it?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I think that um, to really answer that, someone would need to design a study and um, compare eggs and embryos from a patient and put them into two different conditions and see... <laughs> you know, how, how it works out in the end in terms of how many good quality embryos are present and it uh, um, and, and would need a fairly large number of patients. So I think it'll be a little while till I can give you a good answer on that one.
0: Yeah, I look forward to it. I look forward to when, and I've not heard of anybody who's getting ready to publish on that, but if you hear of it, if you let us know, we will sure follow it and uh, report it out to our uh, extensive audience. Uh, I would like to see that result as well. I mean there's some common sense there, but it, but also, you know, hard to know how it would actually play out. Yeah. Let me pause a moment to thank two of our partners. Our partners are clinics and, and organizations that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to patients and to their allied professionals. And uh, they go beyond just saying that they believe in in patient education and in, in bridging the gap between research and the patients. They actually put their money behind us in order to support this show as well as all the resources we provide. Let me tell you about two of our wonderful partners. Cooper Surgical, Fertility, and Genomic Solutions are global leaders in IVF and reproductive genetics. They offer PGTA, PGTM, PGTSR, and erp endometrial receptivity testing for individuals and couples who are planning a family and pursuing IVF. And, and for me, this is really important. Uh, Cooper Genomics is also Proud to provide comprehensive genetic counseling to their patients. I think that is so important, and we're so happy to have uh, Cooper Genomics as one of our partners. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are a full-service fertility center specializing in in vitro fertilization, egg donation, egg and embryo freezing, LGBTQ family building, reproductive surgeries, and male reproductive medicine. Highly individualized patient care is offered through 13 reproductive endocrinologists and fertility specialists. Plus, they have a urologist and a full support team for their patients. All right. Now, are there specific patients who are better suited to use IVC or who should not use IVC? Uh, And I'm thinking about things like their AMH level, are their uh, uh, FSH level, are... uh, Uh, repeated failures or or things such as that?
1: That's a great question. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that's definitely something I wanted to clarify in in our conversation. The way we're using InvaCell, um, which is what most people call a minimal stimulation uh, protocol to to stimulate the ovaries, we want to make sure that the patient has a good prognosis for being successful with this. And... What we're doing is limiting imbecile to women who are under the age of 38 because egg quality declines with increasing age. Uh, And we want them to have an AMH of around 1.5 or more because the AMH level is very predictive of how well ones ovaries will respond to medication and how many eggs we can get at the time of the egg retrieval. Um, We do have a BMI cutoff too, it's at 37. But that's not specific to the cell. that's actually for all of our IVF patients because we feel like uh, there's enough evidence in the literature that ties um, elevated BMIs to lower chances of success, and so we encourage people to, um, to get their BMI down before going through the treatment. And because the fertilization is happening in a more natural way, we want to make sure that they have good sperm quality.
0: So they have to have a normal sperm analysis, I would assume, because you're not going to be able to do any form of ICSI or or, uh, enhanced fertilization.
1: That's correct.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And um, if someone has failed at IVF, uh, but meets these other criteria, are they eligible? And by saying failed by IVF, what I mean is having a IVF cycle that did not result in a pregnancy. Well, um,
1: I think some patients could. I don't want to have a, a blanket statement to answer that question. If if I have a patient who goes through traditional IVF and fails, I always have a follow-up to try to help understand why mm-hmm. and what what we've learned from that cycle and to help guide the patient about what their next next steps ought to be. For some patients, Invisal would not be a good choice. Um, if a patient had a poor response to medication, or uh, let's say a patient had a good number of eggs at retrieval and fertilization went well, but embryo quality was very poor, uh, I'm not optimistic that Inbacell would produce any better results. So I wouldn't recommend going down that path. Mm -hmm. But if somebody did make good quality embryos and they had implantation failure, or they had pregnancy, but an early miscarriage, and they didn't want a larger number of embryos, I think InvaCell would be an option, a viable option for that patient.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned that um, there are, there is definitely a, and I think it is a subgroup, but we certainly hear from them. And I think we hear from them because we're a, uh, we're a pl- we're fairly neutral place and we're a safe place uh, for them to vent this. But there are definitely patients who worry about the creation of excess embryos and they worry about it because they are not sure what their options are. They may well be sure of what their options are, but they don't have any options that they, they don't want to create more embryos and they're willing to try to transfer and have as children. And uh, how would uh, IVC? How would that? Would this be a good option, assuming they meet the other criteria, for families uh, who are, are patients who do not want to have excess embryos left over or want to limit the number?
1: No, that's that's a great point. Um, that's right. Now, when used with a minimal stimulation protocol, the likelihood of having a large number of surplus embryos is going to be lower compared to traditional IVF. And, and you're right. I've I've said. I've sat down and had some very emotional conversations with patients who ended up having, you know, six to eight frozen embryos. And now they have a problem that they never imagined. Exactly. And it's a very difficult decision um, Mm -hmm. to decide how, what to do
0: with these extra Mm -hmm. embryos. It Uh, is not for everyone, but for when it is a difficult decision, it's heart rendering. And we've, we certainly walked with a number of people down that path. So how does, uh, uh, the endocell uh, procedure compare with either IUI with injectables or with IVF for the risk of multiple pregnancies? Because let's be clear, the uh, what our goal is, is to have one healthy singleton. That's right. Uh, so how does it compare on that risk?
1: Because we're using this in patients who are under the age of 38, our standard is to only transfer one embryo at a time. Um, and And that's the best way to minimize the chance of a multiple pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in, in, lately our multiple pregnancy rates from anything IVF or invasol related has been less than
0: 5%. And so, but that's your same standard for IVF too. So you would be oh, yeah. doing the very same. What about uh, IUI then? How would it compare?
1: Well, when we're using IUI with Clomid or Letrozole, the twinning rate is very low. It's probably around 5%. Um, and it's the the chance of twins is really predicted by the number of follicles or eggs that develop in response to the medication so when we use uh, injectable gonadotropins and we're intentionally stimulating multiple eggs that's when we can see twinning rates of 15 up to 20% and I have to admit we still see the occasional higher-order multiple pregnancy Mm -hmm. um, you know even triplets Uh, I Don't remember the last time we saw quadruplets, but that's the uh, now the more common way to have a multiple pregnancy is through injectable gonadotropins with IUI. Mm -hmm. And there is a trend now where um, many clinics are really trying to avoid injectable gonadotropins and IUI for that very reason, Mm -hmm. having you know encouraging patients to go from uh, oral medications directly to IVF.
0: Mm Yeah, I think that's uh, something that we've certainly talked about on this show, um, but uh, it's a myth to think that the, especially the higher order multiples are coming from IVF or IVC. Um, they generally are coming from um, uh, yeah, IUIs with uh, uh, injectables, yeah. uh, because even with the best of monitoring, it is still possible to result in, uh, in higher order. Okay, you had mentioned that there are other clinics are uh, using uh, the InvoCell, using, not every clinic is, is using it the same way. What are some of the variations that our, our listeners may, may see when they start talking about this?
1: I've heard that some clinics are doing uh, full-dose ovarian stimulation protocols uh, rather than minimal stimulation protocols, um, aiming to get a heart larger number of eggs. Um, That's one difference.
0: Uh, That would affect the cost savings, however, would it not?
1: Correct. Uh, More gonadotropins would be used, and generally you will see um, more monitoring appointments too, so more ultrasounds and blood tests along the way. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Uh,
1: Another difference is that some clinics are doing ICSI. Um, So rather than letting the sperm fertilize the eggs naturally, the eggs are going through the ICSI process, um, but the timing of ICSI sometimes is different. And uh, because of the extra work being done in the lab, the patient will not have the invacell device inserted immediately after the egg retrieval. The patient will come back later in the day to the IVF lab after the ICSI process has been done and then have the imbecile device inserted. Um, but then she'll culture for five days and come back.
0: Hmm, okay. Um,
1: those are two of the the big differences that I've heard of.
0: And I, I, have you read? Uh, um, do you know how there uh, how the growth embryo growth is for those that are using ICSI versus? Because we talked about uh, a, uh, a higher percentage of women not getting enough embryos to transfer mm-hmm. um, with IVC. Do you have is uh, what are you hearing as far as the if they're using ICSI, is that preventing that problem? Or is it just too early to tell? It's, uh,
1: I think it's a little early to tell, but from from what I've heard um, through other sources is that uh, when ICSI is being done, it can certainly minimize the chances of fertilization failure. Um, and you're more likely to have embryos available to transfer that way. Um, so, but but I haven't heard actual numbers or statistics.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen them either. And then also, though, um, the, the counter argument would seem to me would be that your cost would, because obviously you know, that's a more expensive procedure. And um, so your costs are going to start increasing. And at what point, uh, if your costs are close to IVF, do you, do you use uh, IVC versus going straight to IVF?
1: Yeah, I... I um... I had the same question, and I think that um, uh, some clinics uh, have uh, found a position for InvaCell within their uh, different treatment options. That's uh, that's different than ours. Um, I think that you know the intravaginal culture process works, um, and, and by avoiding the IVF lab, that is still a significant cost reduction. Um, but I think that if you know people are using higher amounts of gonadotropin and adding in ICSI. That um, there's probably a little bit of cost creep, but um, you know, in in for some clinics, the, there's still maybe considerable savings for patients,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and um, and it still may be a good option. But we're we're trying to keep the total cost to just a you know very close to half of a regular IVF cycle. We think that that's a, a nice place for our patient population that really mm-hmm. improves accessibility.
0: And now let's talk about what uh, the published research is showing. There isn't a huge amount of published research that I've seen, but that would make sense because it's a relatively new uh, procedure. Um, what, ha- what are you seeing in the research?
1: Um, one of the more recent papers was from um, a practice in Texas and uh, at CARE, uh, and they published a paper uh, using blastocyst culture, and um, comparing um, some patients who were doing traditional IVF to doing intravaginal culture. And they show that the chance of having a high quality embryo is very similar between the two.
0: Interesting. And okay. That's
1: with day five culture.
0: Are, are there still clinics that are only using, uh, are, are only cultivating for day three, which is, is actually what it is approved for? Are most people, are most clinics now still going to day five?
1: Most clinics are going to day five um, when they When the manufacturer sought FDA clearance, um, you know this was almost ten years ago, and um, you know there were still a lot of centers that weren't doing day five culture yet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, they only included studies that did day three culture um, within interventional culture, but now I, I, I think only a small percentage of clinics who offer this are, are sticking to day three culture. Um, under when when used with the, the proper media, um, uh, we're still seeing beautiful embryos coming out of MSL going out to day five.
0: Yeah, the sh- the, the practice the the, the the what's considered best practice now has shifted from ten years ago yes. uh, to exactly. So that 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 would make sense. Uh, And is the culture that is being used uh, in the InvaCell device the same culture that would be being used if it was being uh, cultured in a laboratory? Uh,
1: Are you referring to the media itself? Media,
0: yeah, the media. Yes, Mm -hmm.
1: yes. Uh, We're using media that was originally designed to be used within the IVF lab. Um, And this particular media was specifically um, used for time lapse um, incubators, um, which is a, a media that was designed to be kept in place for the full um, culture period out to the blastocyst stage mm-hmm. rather than being changed periodically. So mm-hmm. it seemed to be appropriate for a device like this that we were planning on having the patient keep in the vagina for five days.
0: Yeah, you're not going to take it out and change the culture, right? <laughs> okay. All right. So it is it is a one of the standard media that is uh, was already developed for laboratory use.
1: Correct.
0: You know, it occurs to me that you know when we talk about access to care, um, certainly our audience is is mostly U.S., although we have a an international, but obviously they'd have to be speaking English. But there is also an access. So, so when we think of access to care, our audience is generally thinking of access to care here in the United States, or England, or our Australia, or, or Canada, or any English speaking country. But we have a whole other access to care issue, and that is for, for women throughout the world um, who don't have access to the high-quality infertility treatment that's available uh, here in the U.S., available if you've got the, the, you know, if you can afford it, but still available here in the U.S. Is there a possibility of using um, IVC or InfoCell? Because it seems like you would, you would be, it would be easier to set up a clinic because you wouldn't have to have the lab and everything, or am I making this too simplistic?
1: No, I, um, I think that's a, a great point. In fact, I know that's already been done. There's a, uh, a physician and group in Texas who opened a, a clinic specifically for InvaCell for patients of uh, you know a lower socioeconomic status uh, who didn't have insurance coverage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're right. You wouldn't have all of the startup costs of buying all of that expensive laboratory equipment, right? And having a, a need for a larger staff to 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 work in that IVF lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also heard of other clinics opening up in this country too, um, who focus just doing on in, focus on just doing InvaCell. Um, And so, yes, I mean it. It definitely helps improve access to care. And and another thing to consider is that. You know, if you look at the geographic location of these IVF labs, they're all clustered in the large cities in the large metropolitan areas. Such
0: a good point. Yes. There's
1: so many women throughout the country, I mean, hundreds of thousands, who don't have access to care because they just can't travel the distance. Yep. Um, and this is one of the areas that has helped, um, you know, patients in, in our state because we have many patients now doing Invisal who live one to two hours away and don't have to go through as many appointments as they would for traditional IVF because of the less monitoring. Uh, And they also don't have to think about going through IUI cycles month after month, though there's fewer appointments per cycle. Mm -hmm. The idea of going through those several appointments each month for three, four months at a time uh, is daunting. For some of these patients, they have to take an entire day off of work.
0: I was going to say, not only daunting, but, but time-consuming and, and interferes with their work in a significant way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly.
1: So being able to provide a form of treatment with a much higher success rate with um, you know, less uh, of a time commitment compared to traditional IVF, is, is just, it's been a great option for many patients in North Carolina.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And throughout, we, uh, again, uh, people from the large metropolitan areas often don't appreciate that outside of large metropolitan areas, Mm -hmm. people have to travel. And, And you're exactly right. They have to take off from work. Uh, and the more appointments, so yeah, that's an interesting point. And I also just can't help but think in other countries as well. That uh, do you know of anybody who is thinking about trying to expand to provide coverage throughout the world? Um, you know, in a more cost-effective way. Uh, no,
1: I'm 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 sure that that's happening. I've heard that that's happening, but I can't give you any specific.
0: Yeah. Idea. Okay, I'm just curious because I find it. Again, it's a. Uh, the whole idea of access to care is something that we talk about a lot. And uh, and this is an interesting option for increasing uh, care for people just everywhere, including the U.S.
1: And another thing to consider for the patients that we're using Invisal with are the patients who need donor insemination. Um, mm. Patients who are using donor sperm because their male partner May not have any sperm, or if we have um, some single women or lesbian couples, Um, this is a great option because now the patient only needs to purchase one sample of donor sperm. On the other hand, if the patient were going through insemination cycles, she would likely need to purchase three or more samples of sperm. And because uh, the the way of doing imbecile gives us uh, the strong possibility of having extra embryos to freeze. There's the possibility then that the patient will have genetic siblings to their first child um, as a frozen embryo. And then they won't have to worry about purchasing extra samples of sperm for future children or Mm -hmm. whether, the donor that they're using will have any samples available. Yeah, you...
0: whether that donor or, and, and sometimes they have to purchase in advance because they want to make if if they want to make certain they have full genetic siblings. So, from the standpoint of a patient considering this, assuming that the uh, the woman does not have fertility issues, that it still might work out from a cost-effective standpoint to go through the stimulation and the egg retrieval and and to, then and do donor sperm because. They wouldn't have to buy multiple vials and because the, they would hope that, again, because especially because she likely doesn't have fertility issues, they would hope to end up with at least one extra uh, frozen embryo so that it could even be, it would it worked out but to be more cost effective to do it this way?
1: It, it could work out to be more cost effective mm-hmm. in the long run. That's right. If their goal is to have more than one child,
0: mm-hmm. then, Interesting.
1: Uh, this is something that patients should strongly consider. Yeah. Uh, Insemination pregnancy rates just, you know, the spontaneous conception rates are a little over 20% per month for women in their 20s and early 30s. So we can't expect uh, donor insemination rates to really be any better than that if we're doing Mm -hmm. natural cycles or using Clomid. So on average, it's going to take more than three cycles to have the same chance of pregnancy. more than 3 cycles with IUI using donor sperm to have the same chance of pregnancy as one attempted in Wow,
0: okay, that's fascinating. Well, thank you so much Dr. John Park for talking to us today about intravaginal culture. Let me remind everybody that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your infertility professional. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week.